The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP and John Paz. With me today, a very special guest. He's the author of Dynamite and Davey, the new book about the British Bulldogs. He is Mr. Stephen Bell. Stephen, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Oh, great, John. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So what is going on in your world? What have you been up to? I know it's kind of been a little bit of a whirlwind because of the success of the book. Yeah, it has been a bit of a whirlwind and it's sort of coming to waves because um, we had the UK release, but with, with it being a UK publisher, um, they got the sort of release date through here first. So there was that initial sort of wave of feedback and reviews, which was sort of really exhilarating. And uh, and there were a lot of relief involved in that because uh, the the getting it over the line ended up not being quite as straightforward as I'd hoped, you know, and... Um, I really, even more so than with the previous two books, I felt a real sense of, I think there were a real sense of trepidation over how it was going to be received. And I just hoped that I'd got the balance right. I so wanted it to be a positive overall book uh, about the two guys. Um, but obviously you couldn't help, but I couldn't help but come from a lot of the controversial aspects within their lives. Um, so I just really had, um, I were really cautious of how I uh, tread that balance. I didn't want it to come across as any kind of whitewashing where I ignored things, but I also didn't want to uh, sort of go in too deep or be overly negative when there were no need to be at all. Um, And so when that, uh, it took a bit of enjoyment away from the first release, actually, because I was so nervous about that. But then when all the feedback and all the reviews came back, so positive, overwhelmingly positive and um, yeah, it, it, it allowed me to almost enjoy the worldwide release and the US and Canadian release, which came a couple of months later, just sort of five or six weeks back now. Uh, and that's followed a similar thing, more and more reviews coming through. And yeah, it's just it's just been really great. Now I can finally sort of sit back and enjoy it. But um, I'm actually 
recording the audio book as we speak. So uh, that should be another sort of wave of uh, that demographic. Certain people only listen to audio books. It's such a big market these days. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that that's going to cause uh, some more potential people to read stroke listen to it uh, then that's a new thing for me neither me or my publisher have ever done that before we've took the opportunity because off of the back of the success of dynamite and davy uh, both myself and the publisher have took the plunge into that world now which is uh something we're excited about was the controversy you know obviously maybe more towards dynamite but was that because his family wasn't involved at first in in the book or was that they were involved and you couldn't avoid that controversy um, it, the, the, the controversy came more with uh, Davis' side, or it's certainly the, the oh, trouble okay. that I had getting it over the line, which it really surprised me and, you know, ultimately disappointed me. Um, Tom's side were sensational the whole way through. They, uh, Bronwyn, I know, acted as Tom's sort of uh, the keeper, uh, the curator of his, his legacy, if you like. Um, and she, she she loves to be involved and she was the person who I reached out to first and uh, I struggled to sort of break down that barrier of, of trust. I, I was anybody from the other side of the world, you know, and um, it was only when I made contact with other members of the Hart family and ultimately ultimately Ross Hart, who was a very extremely well-respected member of that family, he put the word out there to other members of the family, look, this guy looks good, sounds good, he's uh, sold this project to me. Uh, told them that he were on board, he were helping me out a lot and advised them to as well. So then Bronwyn instantly came back to me then and said, look, all right, I, I will be involved. She asked me to send her and her mum copies of my previous two books so they could have a quick look at the quality of the work and things like that. And then ultimately got a big green light from them to say, yes, go for it. And since then, me and Bronwyn have become good friends. I asked her to write the afterword because um, obviously I was desperate for an happy end to the story, which, you know, there isn't one really, but uh, Bromwyn tells the story of how she was reunited with her dad so brilliantly um, that I really wanted that to to come in, to come through the pages in her voice. And she agreed to do that, and that was absolutely fantastic. Ross Art wrote the foreword um, after being so heavily involved. Um, but now Davis, Davis Sider, sort of, I don't know, um, I want to use the word protective over over his legacy and and things and yeah i never sort of broke that uh barrier down really and ultimately towards the end they actually um sort of put up some opposition to it to it actually being out there which just caused a, a little bit of um yeah a bit of an uncomfortable time for me as we went through the publication process but we, we had a bit of back and forth and sort of reached a bit of a compromise yeah now, were they trying to do something with WB? Because I know, obviously, he was in the Hall of Fame. It seemed like that was the, like the stopping point between them wanting to help you and them, like, oh, we could do something with WB. Like, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so the first feedback I got back was that it was what was stopping them was conflicting, conflicting projects, and I massively understood that. I had a bit of back and forth with Harry, who seemed positive about. Uh, helping me, but then you know he, he resigned with WWE, and there was this. Uh, icons documentary coming out which i know they're so heavily involved with heavily involved with and um i absolutely respected it was uh down to um conflicting projects and um yeah so then i was quite surprised and when when the, it sort of i got an email dropped in my inbox that they were sort of 
challenging it based on its content, uh, the book's content, which, uh, you know, everybody says it's very, very positive overall based on the stuff that's pre previously been out there and uh, puts a positive spin on everything. So, um, yeah, I was disappointed that that's how we ended up with that sort of uh, slight um, bit of bad taste, really, between the two sides. I never wanted that. I wanted them to have the exact same exposure and voice through this, the way that Bronwyn had had. Uh, but it were to be, and I, I absolutely respect that, um, you know, they've got their own uh, projects and their own things that they're working on, and this didn't sort of fit the bill, and that's absolutely fine. So what made you kind of want to write the book and do the book? Because was it the lack of, like, bulldog stuff out there? I mean, like, why did you want to do it? Their favorite wrestlers, maybe? Yeah, so um, I was a huge, uh, born in 1985, and in the early 90s here in the UK, uh, WWF was huge. Sky TV did a big deal with Vince, and it was absolutely piped into all our living rooms. You couldn't avoid it. And as sort of seven, eight, nine-year-old lad, uh, we all loved it, my, me, my brother, my friends. Um, and Davey was obviously a huge hero of ours, and it... That, along with being such a huge soccer fan, uh, you sort of gain some geographical knowledge at a young age. You know, I found out, oh, that's the British flag that he's wearing. That's the, And you sort of build up this partisan, uh, which is what rest, a lot of wrestling fandoms built on. And so we all loved and cheered for the British Bulldog. In the mid-90s, then, there was obviously a lull with the WWF. WCW didn't get the same exposure in the UK. Uh there was obviously a lull with WWF in terms of quality, really, um, after Hogan had left uh, and Davey had left for a brief period. Uh, and, yeah, we all sort of moved on to other hobbies and interests and started thinking that we're probably a bit cool for wrestling at that sort of age, maybe, you know, 11, 12. And then as we reached as teenagers, I reached my teenagers, the Attitude Era came in and what else would a teenage lad want but the Attitude Era? So, um Davey had actually, he was back with the WWF then in his jeans and um, hiking boots sort of stage. And it felt like he and The Undertaker really were the only two that had sort of transcended the two eras of fandom. And by then, when I'm 16, 17, 18, uh, I realised that it were actually from a very, very similar shared heritage to me. We were both from small mining towns in the, in the north of England, less than an hour's drive between them. Um, and so that sort of brought it all into context. This, this guy who was larger than life, almost cartoon style superhero when I was young, uh, suddenly now I'd, I'd learned a lot more about him. And then when my fandom got to such a level where me and my brother went back in time and started watching all the pay-per-views back at WrestleMania 1. And so on the second night of that, uh, watching the VHS tapes, WrestleMania 2, there are the British Bulldogs. And that was when I was first introduced to Tom. And um, my first uh, thought on that was, Davey was the star because he was the British Bulldog that I remembered. Uh, so they must have just sort of dragged anybody in off street to be his tag team partner, like was what my uh, uneducated mind thought. And I tell the story of the book and I've spoke to it. I've spoke about it a lot with other people and a lot of people thought the exact same until they was educated on who the Dynamite Kid was. Um, and so it was only then when I got so, again, my fandom just kept getting bigger and bigger and I started reading books. Mick Foley's book talks a lot about how good Dynamite is. Uh, and then I found out that they were first cousins, literally grew up streets away from each other and I've been to visit their own town. 
And so, yeah, um, I got really fascinated with the story. And this is sort of 20 years ago now. And then Davey died. That hit me hard. You know, I think a lot of people have got this, you know, somebody that they think of in the mind of to remember where they were when they heard the news that somebody had died. Well, that's Davey for me. I remember exactly where I was. Uh, sort of shook me to my core. And then because I was reading so much about the behind the scenes stuff and even going back in time, I started to learn a lot more about the steroid culture, the lifestyle, the painkillers and, st- and things like that. And it all just started to piece together in my mind as being, wow, what, a, what an amazing but tragic sort of story. Uh, and then, as I say, fast forward 20 years, uh, or sort of 15 years, uh, I'd published my first sports book. Second one, did, second one then came out, which is about a local hero, World War One hero, who was also a massive sporting hero from, from my hometown. And he ended up being, after a Hall of Fame rugby career, he ended up going into professional wrestling, uh, following his war heroics. And... Um, he was Britain's first ever world champion, world heavyweight champion in the 1930s. And then as it turns out, that he was a big part of the reason why the mining towns in the north of England developed into de- developed from very legitimate styles, catch-as-catch-can style of wrestling into pro wrestling. Um, and so my research, the latter part of my research into is... Um, the snake pit came up in Wigan, Ted Betley's name came up in Wigan, and ultimately the Bulldog's name came up, where I'd already been so fascinated by, the sto- about, by their story them years earlier, and it felt like a little bit kind of serendipitous that it had come together like that. And so when the publisher asked me what I wanted to do next, I kind of just thought, yeah, I think I'm sort of ready to take that dive and, and go for the Bulldog story. Where were you when he died, David? I was, at, I was at a caravan. I was at... I was at my mum. My mum and dad had a caravan at Bridlington. They've actually just got one again now, recently, but they went a few years without one. But they were at a caravan at Bridlington, um, and I was visiting them for the weekend, or I'd gone with them for the weekend. Uh, and yeah, um, my brother, my brother told me. I can't remember exactly how he got the news straight to him there in Bridlington in two thousand and two. But yeah, he told me, and I went, "Wow, what?" Yeah, uh, there you go. Pretty shocking, yeah, definitely. Well, gone way too soon. I think he was only forty, right? I mean, thirty-nine, yeah, yeah, true. way, way too soon. So obviously, you know, you're you're a Bulldogs fan. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you were more of a British Bulldog fan because the age you weren't knowing as much about Dynamite, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was completely before my time, and um, yeah, I remember reading the the few lines in Mick Foley's book where he says. Um, Dynamite kicks, he starts to tell his story about it. And I think it's just Mick's second match. Uh, he's an enhancement talent for WWF in 1986. Bulldogs were tag team champions. And Dynamite roughs him up, to say the least, breaks his jaw with a with a stiff clothesline. And he's telling that story in his book. And it, it just refers to Dynamite kid, Tom Billington, probably pound for pound, the best wrestler in the world at the time. And that's how it took me back. What? Really? Because uh, even though I'd seen them few matches in the WWF pay-per-views, you've got to bear in mind that Tom was suffering badly with his back injuries at that time. Uh, it was past this sort of early 80s absolute peak. Um, and yeah, so what I'd seen in, in tag match, especially sort of the Survivor Series matches where he might get a few minutes or whatever, um, I hadn't seen anything that sort of had possibly made me think that. I still thought that Davey was the star of that tag team. And uh, Dynamite was sort of a supporting act. 
Uh, so that was, that were a real trigger for me to go and find out a little bit more at the time. And that's so when I started finding out about them being first cousins and that lineage and that heritage. And, and that's when the story really started um, coming together in my mind as well. What an amazing thing for them to come from that background, achieve everything that they did. And then their relationship as cousins, so complicated. You know, they went from being best friends and tag team partners to ultimately ended up being mortal enemies. But it, there was ups and downs it was like a roller coaster they're all the way through so as I did more and more research I was getting more and more fascinated by by all that and yeah even though um Dynamite did his autobiography in 1999 uh and there's been a couple of sort of little documentaries about Dynamite 40 45 minute long documentaries um there's only so much you can tell in that and obviously it is uh, autobiography, you're already getting one side of the story. There's never really been that much done about Davey. As I say, I think there's a couple of things in the pipeline, um, which I, I wish the family all the best with all that, everything they've got going on. Um, but the, the the story, as I've told it, and the story of them uh, as cousins from a mining town in the north of England and how that relationship followed um, each other's path. You know, you got Tom sort of blazing a trail and Davey following behind, and then there's a definite point where that, changes round and uh tom is sort of riding on davis coattails in the mid 80s years as he's um becoming more and more riddled with injuries can't do what he used to be able to do davis coming into his own and that dynamic and what seeing or researching how tom dealt with that not great um is ultimately what led to the breakdown of uh, of everything and and yeah it's so fascinating and yeah i just can't wait for everybody to read the book so cool because if you think about it, you're right. Like, okay, Dynamite carried him for a period of time. Then, you know, yeah. Davey carries him for a period of time. Kind of evens itself out. But if you go into, you know, early 80s especially, Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask, one of the greatest feuds of all time. I love going back and watching their matches way ahead of their time. Dynamite, for a while, is probably the best wrestler in the world, maybe until Bret Hart comes around, probably. If you Bret Hart starts getting rolling, really, in his prime, it's almost like, to me, if you go from early 80s on, obviously, I mean, there's guys before that, but it's like Dynamite, his period where he's the best, Bret Hart for a period, he's the best, Benoit for a period where he's the best, and probably Brian Danielson. So it's like those four guys to me are like the four best, but people have to realize Bret was influenced by Dynamite. David yeah. Boy is influenced by Dynamite. I mean, Dynamite was awesome. Benoit influenced so much by Dynamite. Oh, you know, forget about it. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Is is influence on what we would see in them years after, and and the way things were so almost repeated off the back. They were desperate to try and repeat that uh, the Dynamite Kid and Tiger Mask. So the series of matches that Benoit had with as with Joshin Thunder Liger, um, it's almost like they're trying to recreate that. And then yes. there was Owen over in Japan. Owen heavily influenced by Dynamite. Uh, so yeah, for for a good twenty years after Dynamite, you could actually see and feel the the absolute influence uh, that he had, and yeah, it's just a shame that he had to, to to break down those walls for him to to blaze a trail for them guys. Uh, unfortunately, he had to sort of push the boundaries so much and probably pushed them too far towards the end in terms of um, his never say die attitude. But that came across to other people as as almost bullying, and um, obviously the the feeling that it just was never quite big enough led to the more and more steroids. Uh, the real eye impact and over the top bumping that it did, 
so revolutionary at the time led to all the injuries which led to the painkillers and uh, alcohol abuse and yeah um but some it's almost like somebody had to do it for the for the guys to follow on yeah, people don't realize, I mean, he's the pioneer of, of, of like, even today's wrestling. He's kind of the pioneer mm-hmm. of it all in that style. There's no, no doubt about it, right? I mean, it's safe to say that. Oh, absolutely. And as you say, when um, the when you watch the Tiger Mask series of matches, there's one in particular that's the one at the at Madison Square Garden in 1982. You can actually, Vince is on commentary, and I don't think he's ready for it at all. It's only seven minutes long, this match, and the crowd, they're almost treating it like uh, like the intermission because these two would have just brought them both in for Vince to have a look at them. I think in particular, what to have a look at Tiger Mask because of everything they were hearing from New Japan. Uh, and Dynamite was, it was known that Dynamite was absolutely his best opponent to get the best out of him. So well, let's get Dynamite down uh, and see what they've got. Oh, we've only got a short period of time for him because big John Studs on next kind of thing. And... Um, the crowd are almost all milling around, not really interested. Neither of them get much of a reception when uh, when they get introduced. Within two minutes of the match starting, Vince is going wild on commentary. The crowd are glued to the action. And by the time it finishes seven minutes later, they're in raptures of applause, whistling. And, and yeah, you can see it almost, they weren't ready for it. And no, no matter where they went with that series of matches, the crowd just weren't ready for it. And uh, that's where it sort of blazed that trail and people wanted to copy that. No doubt. It just feels like he was the pioneer and a lot of people won't give him the credit, but he really should be given his just due and, and give him the credit. Even Mick said Mick Foley in his book was talking about how he's the best wrestler pound per pound in the world. He did break his jaw. You know, he was a little bit of a bully, but I mean, still, he was still one of the best in the world. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think people almost understood that that came with where he, he'd had to, the, the route that he'd had to take to get there. And I think a lot of people respect the fact that, um, especially the smaller guys, they wouldn't have gone on to have the careers that they had and earned the kind of money that they had without Dynamite. And when you look at his, uh, where he'd come from, going through the really tough gyms in and around Wigan, the Snake Pit and Ted Bentley's gym, uh, he was taught that you paid your dues in that ring and it didn't, I think when he got to the WWF, especially, uh, and he saw guys who he felt hadn't, who were more, you know, would come from the bodybuilder types and uh, people would come just being winged in from different sports or whatever it might be. He didn't feel like they'd paid their dues and um, obviously he wouldn't be able to act like he did now, sort of acting out about it and uh, playing those pranks and almost coming across as bullying, as you say. But I think people almost understood that it came with the territory and understood almost why you were like that. And uh, I'd like to think that this book, as well as other things that have been said and done, I know sort of 10 years ago, um, his name uh, was almost a little bit toxic in terms of that. It's like the that side of him came first before anybody talked about the wrestling and what he achieved and what he did for other people's careers. Uh, I'd like to think that that's, slightly, that's certainly changed around now. And I think the book's been a big part of that as people learn more and more about, A, just how fantastic he was, how influential he was, uh, and B, a bit more about possibly why uh, he, he had that attitude. I like the way you broke down the book, too, because it's like Dynamite gets his own, Davey gets his own, but then Bulldogs get their own, right? Just explain a, a little bit of just how you broke it down in the book. Yeah, well, I definitely wanted to do that. I wanted it to... Um... 
I saw it as I did more and more research and started building the story together on a on a sort of a wall and a chart and in my own mind, it did start to have. Obviously, everybody talks about a beginning, a middle, and an end. I certainly saw it as a story, and that's why there's certain aspects that I haven't gone too far off that story to tell. You know, certain parts of the life I haven't uh, just sort of not interested. In. It's not part of that lineage, not part of that story. Uh, and so I saw it as a beginning, middle and end, part one, part two and a part three. And during the part one, the first third that came together, what I noticed was it was virtually all dynamite. And it had to be because at that point, Davey uh, was just coming on and he was riding on uh, Davey's uh, dynamite's coattails a little bit and following his path. There was no point in me just repeating um, Davey's path. I'd already told it for dynamite. And then I noticed towards the end, obviously, um, for that last uh, 15 years, if you like, of the story before David dies, um, 10, 10 to 15 years. Dynamite was pretty much a recluse in a wheelchair living in a flat back in Wigan. There wasn't much of a story for me to tell there. That was almost all, David. The bit in the middle is the real sensational bit about them uh, just blowing the world apart as a tag team, revolutionising the tag team division uh, and how their relationship at this sort of peak after it had started off rocky. They weren't the best of friends as, as youngsters. Um and sort of at this peak and then it all fell apart again so as i built the story together i saw it in three definitive parts that all sort of obviously joined together in one timeline uh, and i liked the idea of telling it in that way where dynamite gets his own section david gets his own section but in between is the the real story of the bulldogs together with that like the bulldogs getting together people don't realize they're not you know, huge, you know, they're necessarily smaller guys, especially for that era in the WWF where that's like the land of the Giants, but world tag team champions. I mean, they were pretty damn dominant and there was a awesome tag division at that point too. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, but the awesome tag division really is almost because of them, especially in the WWF, you know, you've got to bear in mind that nothing against uh, the dream team, Valentine and Beefcake, nothing against them guys or um, the teams that had gone before them, but what the the WrestleMania two handing over the title belts from Valentine and Beefcake over to the Bulldogs. After that, you've got suddenly you've got the Bulldogs and the Hearts and Demolition and the Killer Bees and um, all the others that came along around that same time uh, to re the Rougeaus, obviously. Um, and and yet it absolutely blew tag team wrestling into another into another league. It's suddenly Vince, even Vince saw it as. Um, matches that could headline shows and not just as sort of Hulk Hogan and a partner, actual two tag teams against each other could headline shows. And that, uh, that was sort of a bit new to, to the WWF and, um, why they developed by that so much is tag team wrestling were a lot more prolific in Japan. They, they have whole tours that are based around tag teams in tournaments a couple of times a year, both New Japan and All Japan. And so when the Bulldogs started, uh, got put together as a team, they were still actually uh, rivals in Stampede, obviously territory system pre long time before the internet. Um, the could, territories could get away with that, especially between Japan and Calgary. Uh, so they were arch rivals in Calgary, but had started being a tag team in Japan. So that is when they really started the, the double team in the sort of almost telepathic um, nature of how they knew each other's styles, uh, having 
grew up, grown up together, trained together in the same gyms. It really all came together in Japan. And that's when Vince's eyes really got opened to, to who the Bulldogs were. And then after Tom had already changed junior heavyweight singles wrestling, they then went on to change tag team wrestling forever. It really is is impressive, like what they're able to do, because you have the Bulldogs, but then you said then all the other awesome tag teams come in, the the Hearts, the Rougeos, the Bees. I mean, then you start getting the Rockers, and you start getting these Rockers, awesome yeah. tag teams coming. Eventually, you know the Brainbusters. But I mean, you eventually get like some of the like, demolition. Eventually, obviously, I mean some of the greatest tag teams of all time. And it, you're right, it kind of centered around them at first because it's like, all right, all right, you know, you have Sheik and Volkov, they get a lot yeah. of heat. You know, you know, you have the uh, the, the U.S. Express. You know, they're a good team, but they're kind of both. Young there, maybe Barry Window making a star by himself down in NWA. You know, maybe that's the better fit for him. But it's like when the Bulldogs come in, it's like, wow, we can make this division, like you said, sell out shows or an awesome part of the card or something that people will gravitate to outside of Hogan. Absolutely. And it worked and they kept doing it. And it was, um, it went on for years. You can see the how, how it changed from them. And not many years later, I, you know, you wouldn't have thought that the Hardy Boys you know, going back to the sort of my second fandom uh, during the Attitude Era, you wouldn't have believed that 20 years earlier when you had Sheik and Volker from the likes of them, you would never believe that somebody, a team like the Hardys could could exist. But you can see the lineage there. You'd, would, would the Rockers have got a chance if it hadn't been for the Bulldogs? And so on and so on and so on. And then obviously the breakout stars of them tag teams, which turned out to be Davey for various reasons, uh, sort of on not necessarily in ring related of the Bulldogs, but the breakout star of obviously um, that foundation, Brett, the Rockers, Sean, each one of these guys after that tag team division had been set went on to be a, a true star at the top of the singles division. And it almost gave credence, I think, to having these tag teams that, that rather than have two former mid or main event stars who were past the best and just put them together so that they're on the card, which I think were a lot of the uh, the attitude that it would be, or no, get some get some real young stars together, let them make a name for the Sens and, and almost create some com uh, competition within the tag team to see which one of them becomes the breakout star. Uh, and inevitably over the years, that, that has created some, some of the biggest stars we've seen. Yeah, look, Bret Hart, uh, Shawn Michaels, like breaking off from the, that time period of tag teams into big-time singles run, for yeah. sure. A British Bulldog, obviously, could have had a better run there, obviously, you know, in the, the, the early 90s. Kind of, I guess, shot himself in the foot a little bit. A couple of times, yeah. With the book, do you get into the Dynamite Rougeau controversy? Not to go too much into the book, because I want people to you know, go out there and read the book. But do you go into the controversy with the Rougeaus and Dynamite? I do, I do, and um, because I know it's something that's been sort of told a lot, but the thing why I wanted the book to transcend just people who read a lot of wrestling books and people who listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts. So I really needed to tell the story. I needed to tell it in depth, and what I noticed was, again, as I'd got the story laid out on my board, I realized that it was right in the middle. So you've got the part one that's based around dynamite and then it blends into the Bulldogs and then it blends into Davis singles career. What I really realized was right in the middle of the middle part was this Jacques Rougeau incident. And when you think about the after effects, it really is the sort of 
apex of the story as it climbs up, reaches its maximum point. So it, it had to be in there and it had to be in there in some depth. I could have I could have gone into more detail, I think, but I just wanted to, like I had done with the book as a whole and also the individual segments, I wanted to tell it as a story. I didn't want a so-and-so says this in his book, but Jacques Rougeau said this on this podcast. And so I didn't want that clashing of he said, she said. So I took everybody's accounts together, threw them all together, thought logically about what um, what I thought the balance of probability says was the case and whose accounts I trusted over others. And I ran it all past Ross a couple of times. Um, and yeah, I came up with sort of its whole chapter to itself. And yeah, I feel like I, I tell it really, really distinctly, I think. I don't think anybody will have come across a, a telling of it in this way that sort of tells it the story from A to B. Nobody's gets any bias in it. Nobody's uh, nobody sort of gets blamed or put over in any way. I just tell it as it happens as, as quite an entertaining but ultimately tragic part of the story. And off of the back of that, obviously everything started crumbling for Tom in particular. So he had to be in there and had to be in there in some depth. Uh, and yeah, the feedback I've got from uh, Mike Johnson, I remember, uh, told me particularly that he really enjoyed that part. And it wasn't something they were particularly looking forward to in the book because he felt like he did it all before. But he enjoyed the way that I told it. And Pat LaProud has also said that it's dis very accurate to what he understands happens, happened, despite the fact that I've had to sort of almost cram these accounts into one uh, linear story. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, it's in there, and I think you'll enjoy it. The thing is, they had it on Dynamite. I mean, uh, Dark Side of the Ring 2, Jock Rizzo talking about it. I don't know if he's necessarily kidding, because he acted like he was kidding as far as saying he's going to get the mafia to kill him and knock him off. On the documentary, sounds like he's kidding. But in other interviews, he wasn't kidding. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there was a little bit of a balancing act that you might have had to kind of go through with that. Well, I'd seen a quite lengthy um, shoot interview, as, as I suppose it would be called, with Jacques, where he told, he told virtually that exact same version of events that he told on Dark Side of the Ring. Obviously, they'd clipped it down quite a lot on Dark Side yeah. of the Ring for small sound bites to fit into the time allocation. Um, but yeah, when you know the story and you do a little bit of digging on the Rougeos, you realize that there, there was a very sort of big potential for some yeah. links to the yeah. underworld <laughs> uh, in that part of the world. And you think, well, it's really not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, and it certainly seems quite sincere, certainly in the show interview that I saw. So, uh, yeah, I think I think Tom, based on what his wife at the time, Michelle, said about probably for the first time in his life, was actually genuinely scared. Um, that's why obviously led to him. Her account is that he got her a gun to keep sort of by the bed and things like that. So you can really see why uh, physically it was already falling apart and that smashed up mouth didn't help. But you can really see why mentally it was already sort of abusing the substances and everything like that. You can really see why it was the beginning of the end for him, I'm afraid. I've interviewed Ray Rougeau before I asked him about it, and he said nothing about like the underworld or anything like that. He just told Jacques he's got to handle it himself. 
he says, because if I do it, like, the, you know, the, he bullied you, you know, you got to handle it yourself. Raymond Rougeau is one of the toughest guys, supposedly, and I believe it, in the business, like where he maybe could have been able to take care of it himself. I know he had an injury at that point, too. So it was maybe he maybe he was nervous about the fight if he would hurt and he's legitimately injured. But he told Jacques, hey, you got to handle it yourself. So I don't well, you know. Well, I think I think that's. I think that's a very believable account from somebody when you when you look back again. Their father was a real tough guy. Um, obviously, yeah. Ray, Raymond was. I think that there is that um, sort of honour that comes into it with that. And I, my understanding is, I've heard Ray talk about it as well, and I've heard him say something similar that he was willing to get involved, very much willing to get involved, especially when I think Tom sort of started taunting him. Uh, about it all and almost challenging him. I mean, you've got to give almost Tom some credit for that. It wasn't like he was picking on the weaker one. Right. Uh, he was yeah. willing to fight Ray, you know. Um, but from what everybody says, you know, that might have been a little bit more of a challenge for him. Uh, and yeah, you can see why uh, Jack felt beholden to, to sort it out himself coming from that family. You know, the old, I've got to look myself in the mirror every day kind of. Uh, situation his dad apparently was sort of a bit standoffish with him in between and proud of him after you know so you can see why that mentality comes about but what it led to was because Jack was not the kind of guy who would say to Tom right let's sort this out one-on-one in the car park it because he knows that we're probably going to end one way that actually leads to him his version of sorting it out himself led to as it's now become known a sucker punch and a sucker punch with uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a weapon involved, you know. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, you you get the feeling that if it had been Ray and if it had been sorted out a little bit, it might have been a little bit more of a a healthy ending to it, for want of a better word. So with that, and like basically, Dynamite kind of, you know, he basically gets away from the business for a while. I know he was still in Japan and stuff, but is that really like almost the beginning of the end right there for him and his career, like? he was just kind of physically withering away and that was like, ah, shit, you know, like the bully got beat up or whatever you want, however you want to word it. Yeah. Well, it had come sort of only a a year after the back injury. It was never the same after his back injury in the ring. That's when Davey really took the ball and ran with it. uh, And he was so clearly doing the heavy lifting literally um, for the tag team. And he was the breakout star then. That never sat well with Tom. Then this incident happened. Uh, it led to him no longer feeling that he'd got the stature with his own tag team. He no longer got the stature within the locker room that he felt he had. He never really liked the WWF anyway. He didn't like being a babyface. So he was just miserable there. And that led to him taking a sort of tiny little excuse about some commute uh, flight tickets that didn't get booked on his behalf. He took sort of a small issue uh, and chose to walk out. Davey went with him out of loyalty. But Tom, what everybody said, everybody I spoke to him always talks about his pride and his stubbornness and what that led to was a situation where he would never, ever go back to the WWF. It said things and done things that it meant that in his eyes, it were over um, and he could never go back. And when Vince did invite them back, and Tom told him in no uncertain terms, no. Um, that's when Davey realized that the only way that he were ever going to go back, it was going to be without Tom. 
and that was the definitely the end of the tag team then because Davey knew he needed to get back there because in the in the couple of years in between they were doing okay holding their own in Japan struggling a bit in Calgary because the, the territory was struggling um Davey knew that to get back to earning the kind of money and living the kind of lifestyle that he, he had WWF had kicked on again. They were even bigger and stronger than they had been in, when they were there before. He knew he had to get back there and he knew it was going to be without Tom. Tom saw that as a betrayal. And yeah, they never spoke to each other again after that. Wow, that was the last... Wow, okay, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. So when Bulldog goes back, that's basically like... Oh, you're complete, done. With, yeah, completely, completely, yeah. Done. And um, he... The... What... There's a couple of sort of exclusives in the book that I think people real people who know or sort of think that they know the story and sort of know the key parts of it will really enjoy a couple of parts of the book that I've been able to find out more about a couple of issues. Just one, for example, is the trademarking issue where that was seen as even even beyond Davey leaving Tom and going back to WWF. Um that was a huge betrayal in Tom's eyes and probably might not have ever spoke to Davey again. However, the trademark, what Tom always said, was that the ultimate final betrayal was when uh, was because Davey had trademarked the name the British Bulldog and effectively embargoed Tom from uh, wrestling under that name. At the meantime, the only way that Tom could generate himself uh some revenue, particularly in the UK, was almost that almost turned into WWF tribute shows. So for them to advertise a very legitimate British Bulldog uh, in a main event around that time was a huge thing. And Tom felt that he'd been embargoed from doing that. I did find out that Davey never actually personally pursued that and would have let him wrestle as a British Bulldog. Whether or not somebody else did or uh, some trademarking company got involved, I don't know. But what I did find out was that... Um, Tom had actually had the opportunity to, uh, Davey had given Tom the opportunity to um, trademark it with him as a tag team. Uh, I actually, I've actually seen a copy of the actual trademark certificate from the late 80s when Davey took it out and it says the British Bulldogs, plural. But because Tom classed himself, it was quite an expensive um, act to take out one of these trademarks that the wrestlers started doing at the time to sort of protect their own gimmick and their own identity. <laughs> Uh, Tom didn't feel that he was a British Bulldog first. He felt that he was the Dynamite Kid first, and he was his career was so on a high at that time that, and he thought he'd, you know, he'd have to work forever in Japan as this idolised Dynamite Kid. He didn't feel he needed to spend that money to to officially be a British Bulldog. Uh, that was sort of a secondary thing to him at that time. So Davey took out the trademark anyway and paid the full amount himself, and that is what led to that sort of confusion a year later when Tom was effectively told that he could not wrestle under that name. So, yeah, but t- that was t- Tom just weeks after that. He went, Davey were wrestling a show in the North of England. In fact, in Wigan, close by where they were from, and Tom went storming off to look for him, intent on taking out his retribution for this act of betrayal uh, that he saw. Uh, but when you get when you dig down on the real detail, it, it, there was a little bit more to it than meets the eye, and I don't quite think that it was an, an ultimate betrayal by David. That one. It's interesting, like just the fact that okay, he's the British Bulldog, but they were the British Bulldogs. You know where does that divide hit? And now so many fans think 
British Bulldog, they think David Boy Smith, instead of both of them. So I could see even back then him having a problem with it. I mean, that that sucks. Oh, yeah. And you can see on the timeline, you can see why it would happen and why Tom would take that decision. You know, why do I need to spend all that money? I'm the dynamite kid. I'm not the British Bulldog. Uh, so, yeah, you can definitely see why that happened. Um, and then ironically, probably the only reason that the they went with the full-on British Bulldog gimmick when David went back was because of the success of the British Bulldogs. They wanted to reintroduce Davey uh, in a way that everybody had recognised him, even though it was as, as a single rather than a tag. So they went with the full British Bulldog gimmick. Uh, and yeah, he'd already got a signed document at home that said he was the British Bulldog. Yeah. So yeah, you can see why it all happened. If you look at two. SummerSlam 92, the British Bulldog, Bret Hart, and Wembley Stadium in England. He's the main event. That's just now everybody knows him as the British Bulldog. You know what I mean? Like, you go that big an event, you win the Intercontinental title, you're the main event on the show that also had Macho Man versus Ultimate Warrior. You know, it's a huge card, huge show. 82,000 people are there. I mean, it, that got to sting a little bit because it's like, okay, now he's definitely the British Bulldog no matter what because everybody saw that show and now they all equate him with that name. Oh, absolutely. Um, and again, a bit like the, the Jacques Rougeau incident, that, that um, SummerSlam 92 gets a full dedicated chapter to itself. I do think it's a huge part of Davis' career. It's the bit that is sort of always going to be most uh, iconically remembered with, uh, especially here in the UK. I mean, we're only a, a couple of weeks away from the 30th anniversary of it. Uh, I know that there's sort of a couple of huge private screenings going off, well, even public screenings. Um, it, it was a huge event here. I don't think that the subsequent re-emergence of British wrestling, which led to so many main event stars coming from the UK again, you know, you drew McIntyre's and Sheamus and uh, even going back to Wade Barrett. Uh, I don't think a lot of them would have come through had it not been for that spectacle. Uh, it's very iconic and it's just a job fantastically well done by all involved. I think the guts to to go with them as the main event, say, as you say, when you've got Flair and Savage on, on the show, to, to go with the secondary title. Um, and there were sort of still only mid-carders at that time. To put that faith in them uh, and for them to deliver in such a big way, uh, well, great credit to everybody involved. Yeah, that's just like, man, that really made him. Although I know a few months later he had some issues and loses Shawn Michaels, and then he's kind of gone for a while. <laughs> then he goes to WCW, and then he comes back. But, I mean, that's probably all covered the book. But it's just an interesting thing because it's like, wow, like that's the pinnacle, the main event. Even though it was mid-card title, supposedly, the IC title, everybody looked at that like, oh, my God, what a great match. And you know, we're still talking about it 30 years later. I don't know if it's any coincidence, but now they have a pay-per-view clash of the castle in, I know it's Cardiff, Wales, but still UK 30 years later. It's, I don't know, to me, it's one of the things where everybody remembers that. Like you said, private screenings, public screenings, everybody remembers that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a coincidence. They have booked that, uh, the clash of the castle, uh, around that 30th anniversary. I'm, uh, I'm absolutely sure about that. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, I think as everybody was sort of jockeying for position as, as Ogan war, uh, going through the exit door, the, the mid-carders, the younger ones as well, especially uh, Brett and Davey, and as Vince looked to go in a slightly different direction because of the steroid trial, those guys were really jockeying for position. And I think at that time, when Davey was given the nod, 
even though it obviously was for the huge hometown pop, it's. I think it's very fair to say that Davy was in the mix to be um, a, a, certainly a future champion, a, a future main eventer, and obviously Brett, Brett ended up getting that nod. It's a shame that Davy was uh, did it some the sort of real first of his controversial times within the mainstream era of his life uh, happened just just a couple of months after after that event. And even like fast forwarding a few years, I know he comes back. Yeah, you know, he fights Brett, and um, you. Uh, I think it's in your house five. They have an awesome match in the main event for the world title this time. I mean, he he would be tag champ again with Owen. He'd be European champion. I mean, he'd come along and he'd come back oh, yeah. and he really, really, you know, reinvent himself. I'm just always curious, like, and maybe it's in the book. Maybe I'm not sure. Why does he lose to Shawn Michaels at the big UK pay-per-view? You know what I mean? Like five years earlier, they saw the blueprint. He wins, huge pop, you know, great for the crowd. This time around, he loses to Shawn Michaels in the UK? Well, it's been said by more than one person that, you know, the old no more jobs was the uh, was the Shawn Michaels attitude at that time. And yet it feels too much of a coincidence. It feels like it was nailed on for David to win. What they'd done apparently was put that European, invent the European title for David to yeah. be distinctly the European champion because he'd had so many years of selling out uh, these European shows, especially the huge UK ones. He was the main event. He was the European champion. Uh, there was apparently no... Um, it never been mentioned that they were going to take that belt off him. It was designed to repeat the SummerSlam 92 thing over and over again, where you'd got the, the title match, the world title match underneath, and the, the European title match on top with Davey. Uh, that was the formula that they were going to go with. And then sort of out of nowhere, on the very first European tour, and it weren't even a tour, it were a one-off show, one-off pay-per-view, they take the title off him. It's not a coincidence that it was Sean at that time. I don't think we all know that Sean was uh, a bit of a bear to deal with around that time, I think. And uh, and yeah, it came at the worst possible time for Davey. I think he held that title with an awful lot of pride. Uh, things were starting to break down for him physically and behind the scenes. Uh, things were getting the better of him. Uh, and I think that that title of European champion was kind of holding him together at that time. And then obviously, just a month or two later, he got Montreal screw job that leads to him leaving. It loses the security and the uh, home feeling of being in the WWF, and he's got to start all over again in WCW. It don't work out. Uh, then the then comes the trapdoor injury, and it, by then it's it's really starting to spiral. Then so uh, yeah, that one night only pay per view in the UK, I do see as one of the big turning points for Davy in in a negative way. I'm afraid. Yeah. It's- crazy or funny to think like okay dynamite we saw the incident in downhill davy yeah. feels like the same thing we saw it and you know come downhill just really a stunk because when he does come back to wbf i know he goes to WWE, the trapdoor incident and gets injured and he comes back it wasn't like he was getting this big push i mean he had some good matches with like the rock and being in world title matches but it wasn't like the old british bulldog where he was definitely a focus no it, it came back i think there was an element of a goodwill gesture from Vince, maybe, but you could also argue that it was the the cynical side would argue that it was um, scoring points after Owen's tragic death. Um, you know, trying to curry favour and make it appear that 
oh look, you know, the family are the family are perfectly fine with us, you know, because they they had the rejoining. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to know exactly what instigated that, but David needed the work at the time. You can sort of put no blame at his door for taking that contract. He went straight in uh, at the top of the card for a brief period of time, as you say, uh, got to have matches with The Rock uh, and pay-per-viewed the the, the six-way match um, main event. Uh, but yeah, it never felt like the British Bulldog of the past. It felt like he was at that point living on his name, I think. And uh, it was always going to be a short stint. But the way I tell it in the book, the what Rhys Charles says, the fact that it was there is so much huge credit to him. After he'd had the trapdoor incident and then the big complications with staph infections as on top of his addictions into rehab, it's it were written in the Observer and everywhere else at the time. It was written that he might die. It was written that at, it, there were a good chance he was going to be in a wheelchair, which would have been so scarily exactly the same as Dynamite yeah. uh, at that age and that stage of his career. Uh, but it, it was there was no mind about the fact that his career was over. It was written that his career was absolutely over. Uh, so for him to come back from that to have another, albeit brief, run at the top, I think is huge credit to him, really. Man, like what a career from both of those guys. So memorable, so great. It's great to get the book, Dynamite and Davy. I mean, to me, like not forgotten, but it's almost like there's some guys that just get overshadowed, even though they made such an impact because they move on to the next guy. You know what I mean? Like for years, I feel like Bret Hart got overshadowed. Now with Twitter, I feel like he's back and now he's <laughs> getting the props. You know what I mean? I feel like for some reason, guys get overshadowed and overlooked because they're always looking for the next guy. But let's go back, you know, and let's honor the guys that made the guys of the future. Yeah. And I think that in terms of, the British guy, and I, I don't think Davey ever will be topped as that British guy, and I don't think the British Bulldogs will ever be topped as that tag team, or certainly, you know, sort of overshadowed. Uh, them two runs, Dy- Dynamite as a singles worldwide, particularly in that Calgary, the Bulldogs in the WWF to break open that tag team division. Davey with that reinvigoration of the British wrestling scene uh, as as the iconic British Bulldog. I think that's three separate lineages that that will stand the test of time. Uh, it it doesn't feel it never feels like your likes of when another British wrestler comes along. Um, it, it, they don't seem to play on that the Britishness like they did because it almost feels like that's been done. Yeah, they yeah. Drew McIntyre's from Scotland, but let's not make they don't seem to make that big a deal of it in terms of. Uh, it's actual Britishness because it's nothing that new and it's the reason it's not new. It's because Davey was the pioneer of it, really. So just looking back, and we're talking about obviously the book, but what, what do you think is the legacy of the British Bulldogs? Just in, in all, all encompassing, both of them and then, you know, obviously them as team, them separate. What do you think is the legacy, looking back? I think as we've said, Dynamites, it's certainly the... Um, the the changing of the business, especially for the smaller guys, every single one of them owes their career to him, and I think they still know that. You know, I saw an interview with Becky Lynch where that that match that I was talking about at um, MSG that is still one of the ones that's used for the smaller guys or girls um, in in their training. You know, that's still used to this day. Uh, so I don't see is history as a singles and what he did going away anytime soon. I think that as a tag team, 
them and the Hearts and that series of matches with them when they sort of, obviously as fans at the time, you didn't know. And I think that's what's so iconic and wonderful about wrestling at that time. It was, you'd got the, you'd got national and global TV audiences tuning in, but because it was pre-internet, 99% of the viewers had no idea that them guys had wrestled each other hundreds of times already in Calgary. They've got no idea that they're all brothers, in-law, cousins, uh, yep. who know each other's styles te- telepathically and everything like that. They think they're seeing this new series of matches and they think it's just there. And then that, that can't happen now because everybody sort of knows everybody's history. They know every past gimmick that they've had, every, you know, because that's the way the business has gone in tune with social media and the internet. So but I think that series of matches between the Art Foundation and the Bulldogs will always be credited with changing the tag team division. Um, and Davies' final run will always be remembered, particularly in the UK. I think that what I, what I write in the book and what I genuinely think is that Everybody's also got to take into account them as cautionary tales for that era. The business had to change, and it had to change a lot, and eventually it did. It didn't happen straight away, and it took a long time. It took something as ridiculously bad as the Chris Benoit incident, probably to really, truly instigate change. Um, but they are part of that period where you've also got to take into account, you know, your Pillmans and, well, the countless. I put some numbers in the book uh, of just how, how ridiculous it was at the time. The guys dying under 60, it had almost turned into the majority of, of wrestlers were dying before 60. Um, that had to change. And they were a big part of it. And unfortunately, um, the, the, it meant that the book could only have a tragic ending for the guys. Um, but that is their story. As we wind it down, we head towards the finish here. Who's your favorite between the two, or maybe just favorite of all time, if it's not one of those two? Um, I, I've kind of always got to go with David just because of that childhood um, era worship of him. Um, what I would say with Dynamite is it's it's been such a journey, especially getting to know Bronwyn, um, going from those years ago, only really reading obviously I'd read Brett's book which puts him over unbelievably as a wrestler uh, but also as a lot of the horror stories about Dynamite in it as well um, I think like most people my mind had been sort of flooded with a lot of the stories a lot of which I sort of found have maybe been embellished and and so I did go into the project with a very negative view of Dynamite but that's been a journey that I've been on and I can so now sympathize with where he was in his life and his um his upbringing and everything at the time by, by upbringing i mean sort of his his heritage and his his upbringing in the tough gyms and uh, the mining towns around here and uh, that pride and loyalty man i mean i was talking to gary port scott mcgee out here in the garden i remember on the phone uh he was telling me all about tom and his relationship with tom and uh it got all emotional on the phone talking about Tom's loyalty and give me a couple of examples of how he was just the best friend that he'd ever had. And when I started the project, I didn't think that I was going to get that. Uh, so it was really, really rewarding when that did 
happen and that's all sort of in the book and covered and yeah it's a real baby face turn for tom at the end which i'm proud to deliver i'm proud to deliver it for bronwyn and for the book and for tom and for tom's memory so yeah as as an act i think i would always um have to go with david but in terms of how you know I'd, i've always had a positive um opinion of david that that was never going to change doing the book um I found out a lot of things about him, a lot of good things, good and bad, and he's just got this overall positive um, vibe about him. There's not many people with a bad word to say about Davey at all, uh, no matter how much research I want, I, I do. You know, there, there, wasn't, there just wasn't really anybody, and that's great. Um, whereas in terms of the journey of the research and the book, uh, it's been a bit, bit sort of special with Tom, yeah. And then you went to favourite of all time, um, yep. it's Brett. It always was Brett, I'm afraid. Uh, don't want to sort of mark out too much here, but yeah, a, a real rewarding part of the book. Obviously, I'd, I'd reached out to Brett through family, sort of, but I didn't feel like I needed to speak to him because his book is so good, so fantastic, so detailed. He even puts in the book why it's so detailed and why he knows it's so accurate, and that's because uh, he used to keep diaries and uh, record his voice, tell, telling himself a future reference, what the things that had happened. So it was such a valuable resource, 500 pages of direct uh, information straight in there uh, and trustworthy information. It was always my favourite as a kid, uh, going back and watching all the pay-per-views and then reading his book. I just love his book. So, yeah, he, he's got this sort of iconic, mythical sort of place in my mind. Um and then, yeah, when Ross told him what a great job after Ross had read the final or one of the one of the final drafts or whatever, and he reported back to Brett, yeah, I'm going to do the forward for him because it's such a he's done such a good job. Uh, by the way, he's a huge fan of yours. Um, I'm sure he'd appreciate. I didn't really know this was going off. I'm sure he'd appreciate. So um, yeah, one day I checked my spam. Actually, it, it had gone into my spam uh, on my email account and uh, subject line Hitman reaching out, and it were a, an email from Brett. Uh, congratulated me on the book and uh, it told me to give him a call and we ended up having a 30-minute a dis- uh, talk uh, on the phone about how I'd gone about the book and then we sort of digressed into British wrestling and his memories of being over here uh, and where he'd wrestled and yeah, it was really fulfilling as you can imagine uh, and sort of a stamp of approval. I know he's read the awesome. book now. Yeah, I know he's awesome. read the book now and likes it and um, yeah, it's it sort of it, it 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 really was. I, di- I didn't expect it to be, but it really did. It of all of all the people in the world that could give it sort of a stamp of approval, it, it were always going to be Brett if I thought about it. And, and so when that came through, it was it was great. That is awesome. Give us one last push where everybody can find the book Dynamite and Davy. Well, it's uh, it's available worldwide now, so obviously your easiest place is Amazon. If you want to stuff some more money in uh, in Mr. Bezos's pockets, that is the easiest way to get it. I must admit, uh, uh, it's already out on uh, the Kindle edition. Is there? Ad book edition is available there. Uh, and if you're an audiobook fan, yeah, feel free to wait a few months, and that will be available too. Also available in all good bookstores. You can contact me. Uh, find me on Twitter. Uh, if you want a side copy or anything like that, I'm more than happy to uh, get one of them out to you. And what is it on Twitter? What's your uh, Twitter? Uh, well, I've got 
obviously my own personal one, which is at Stephen underscore Bell 1985. But there's also a dedicated page for the book, which is at Bulldogs Book 123. Uh, I'm a little bit more prolific on that during during the actual process of writing the book and advertising its release. Uh, but I do put some sort of exclusive photos and things that I came across that didn't quite make the final cut. Uh, I put them in there. Uh, DMs are open on that one for, for orders and things like that. Or anybody who's got any questions about the actual writing of the book, more than happy to uh, speak to people. All right. Awesome stuff. Steven Dynamite and Davey, great book about the British Bulldogs. Thank you so much for all the time. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.